Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, another volatile day of trading ended with the Dow gaining a little over 300 points, 330 points uh, to be exact, uh, all the markets. The NASDAQ composite was up just shy of 100 points, 97.33, and the S&P gained 38 and a half points. But, you know, about two hours before the close, the Dow was down over 500. And then in about 20 minutes, it rallied from down 500 uh, to positive. And then, you know, and then at the close, it had that 300-point rally. But it started the day up about 200 points. So between up 200, down 500, up 300, again, we're continuing massive volatility, which, as I said, to me, is indicative of a change of trend. Because we were so long in an uptrend with no volatility, now all of a sudden you have this massive volatility. Of course, there are a lot of people jumping on this, oh, it's a reversal, it's a bottom, we made a bottom, we rallied 800 points. Look, that's not how you make a bottom. And, you know, 800 points is nothing. You know, we had 2,000-point drops. Uh, So I don't think that the bottom is in. Is it possible that there's going to be a rally off of here? Yeah, of course, anything's possible. But I don't think it's probable. I think it's a higher probability that we're at a minimum going to retest that low, right? If this really is a correction and not a bear market, I think the low that we put in uh, earlier today is going to have to hold. It's going to have to have some kind of test. But again, looking at the fundamentals, this looks so much more like a bear market. In fact, when you listen to the talking heads on CNBC, 
They keep saying, relax, don't worry. You know, this is a correction. The market is long overdue for a correction. We haven't had a correction in a long time and corrections are normal and they're healthy and all that is true. But, you know, we also haven't had a bear market in a long time and bear markets happen. Bear markets are normal. So how do they know that what we're having now is not the long overdue bear market? In fact, since we've been so long without a correction, you may think that that heightens the probability of a bear market. You know, it's kind of like an earthquake, right? They say that if you have a lot of smaller earthquakes, that you're not going to have a big one because the smaller ones are kind of taking some of the pressure off the fault. But if you haven't had, you know, some small earthquakes in a while, it could mean that there's a better chance you're going to have a big one. And I would say if you have a long period of time without a correction and you don't alleviate some of that stress, you know, some of that overbought uh, euphoria in the market, I would say the longer you go without a correction, the higher the probability that the next downturn is not a correction, but a bear market. But of course, everybody wants to dismiss the possibility of a bear market and just say that it's automatically going to be a correction. In fact, I think maybe that's probably the reason that, you know, CNBC wouldn't even want a guy like me on. They don't want anybody on. I haven't seen one person saying, yep, I think this could be a bear market. Everybody is 100% convinced that it's a correction. In fact, they may ask you that question before they let you on. I mean, they may say, you know, are you bullish on the U.S. economy? Are you bullish on the stock market? And if you don't answer yes to those questions, you can't you can't go on. Although, you know, Fox Business invited me on. Uh, I'm scheduled to be on a week from today on Liz Clayman's show, Closing Bell. So a week from today, I'll be on. Uh, so at least they're having me on. But of course, you know, Liz, Liz and I are friends. I've known her for a long time. That that could be a reason uh, because, you know, I'm not, I'm not really getting calls from that many other uh, shows over at Fox Business either. But at least, you know, at least I'm on. But who knows? You know, sometimes they have a habit of canceling me last minute, although I don't think this appearance will be canceled, but I will let you know if it is. But one thing on CNBC, finally today, I finally saw them discussing the the bond market vigilantes. I mean, stuff that I've been talking about on my podcast, they finally decided to say, maybe all this is happening because of the bigger deficits. Maybe the bond market vigilantes are back because we're going to have these big deficits and it's too much for the market to bear. Yes, finally, finally, after the bond market's getting killed, uh, they finally decided to uh, talk about the real reason, and that is these deficits. In fact, bond prices barely rose today. I mean, when the stock market was down 500, we had a little bit of a rise in bonds and uh, the yields had you know, come down a bit. But when the stock market rallied, I mean, by the end of the day, the yield on the, uh, the 30-year was about unchanged. But they did talk about the fact that the Treasury is going to be auctioning off in new paper in the next year about $1.4 trillion, which is a record. And, you know, the last time they were selling over a trillion dollars worth of bonds, the Fed was buying a trillion dollars worth of bonds. So we don't know what will happen if the Treasury tries to sell one and a half trillion worth of bonds without the Fed buying it. And, you know, the Fed is saying they're going to, you know, they're going to let three or four hundred billion mature off their balance sheet in the next year. And if that happens, then they got to sell what? One point eight trillion dollars of treasuries into the private market. I mean, good luck 
How can anybody think that it's not going to be a problem to sell all that paper, especially given how low the yields are? I mean, yeah, if this was like the Reagan administration and we were offering, I don't know, 15% yield on long-term bonds, yeah, maybe people would line up to buy them. But, you know, at 3% for 30 years, I mean, is there really that many buyers? You know, I when I gave my uh, my workshop today here at the Money Show, I asked for a show of hands. Say, hey, how many people are going to be buying some 30-year treasuries at 3%? Not a single hand went up. I mean, why would anybody want to buy those treasuries? That's the point. And, and so how can they finance this? But here's something that, of course, it doesn't even, you know, consider. They, it doesn't even enter their mind to think about this. But China. China's got a couple of trillion worth of treasuries, right? Russia, Japan, Saudi Arabia. I mean, the whole world is holding on to a pile of low-yielding, overpriced U.S. treasuries. And now they know that the U.S. Treasury is about to sell, you know, close to $2 trillion this year. And then, of course, every year they're going to have to sell. What do you think they're thinking? Right? Do you think they just want to hold on? No. They want to get out in front of that freight train. So it's not just that the U.S. government has to sell all these treasuries. The Chinese government's going to want to sell their U.S. treasuries. The Russian government's going to want to sell theirs. The Japanese government. Why would any government want to hold on to their treasuries? Right. So everyone's going to want out. Everyone's going to want to get out the same door. So there is no way to stop the bond market from just imploding. And, you know, when you hear these people talk, I mean, they say, well, you know, the yields might go to 3% as if that's as high as they're going to go, or they may go a little bit higher. Nobody is talking about three and a half, four, four and a half, five, six, seven. People think that's impossible. Why is that impossible? That's normal. What seems crazy is that they would stay this low. I mean, think about it. We're going to be trying to borrow more money than we've ever tried to borrow before by a massive magnitude. Why would that not push interest rates up, right? I mean, interest rates are the price of money. Prices are determined by supply and demand, right? Well, we're going to massively increase the supply of bonds. Well, then the price of bonds should go down, right? I mean, we're borrowing a record amount of money, and we have the lowest savings rate in 10 years. So we have hardly anybody saving. Everybody is borrowing. The cost of borrowing has got to go up. The demand, right? For borrowing is going up, so the price of borrowing would go up. So rates have got to go up. What is crazy to assume that they're going to stay at these ridiculously low rates that have really never existed with the exception of the last few years of quantitative easing and 0% interest rates. So just assume rates are going to go back to normal. Nobody can make that assumption because I think everybody can do the math and realize that we can't handle normal. So in order to think that everything is okay, you have to believe that interest rates will never get back to normal. Well, why would you believe that? Well, they must believe that the Fed will not let it happen, that at some point the Fed will stop interest rates from rising. And that's what I think. I just think the Fed is going to have to do that a lot sooner than people think because I think the pressure on the bond market is too intense. I mean, bond prices could crash very quickly, right? Once everybody wants to get out at the same time and no one wants to buy, the market can move very, very quickly. I mean, bonds can crash just like stocks, right? And so I think that once we get through some of these technical levels, once the yield on the 10-year gets above three, three and a quarter, I mean, it can move up to four in a couple of weeks. I mean, it can be a violent move. And, and so the Fed is obviously 
going to have to come in. And if they don't come in, then the market's going to implode, right? It's not just going to be a bear market. It's going to be a grizzly bear market. I mean, it's going to go down by more than 50% if the Fed doesn't come in and stop the bleeding. And the, the only question really is going to be, will they be preemptive? Will they see what's happening? Because they didn't do that in the financial crisis. They were clueless, right? I mean, I couldn't believe that the Fed didn't see what was happening. When I, you know, of course, everybody else, oh, no, worry about it. The problems are contained. The fundamentals are fine. So the Fed didn't react until everything imploded. And then they quickly went down to zero and did QE because we were already, it was a disaster. The market imploded. We had the financial crisis. Banks were failing. That time they didn't see what was coming. And so they reacted later. Now, are they going to be any smarter this time? Are they going to see this crisis before it actually blows up, right? I mean, they didn't see it years in advance, but will they see it months in advance? Will they do something preemptively and start, you know, changing policy, call off the rate hikes, cut rates, do QE4 before we're in a bear market, before we're in a recession officially, or are they going to wait to have all the numbers to hide behind, in which case, of course, everything is much worse. You've had much uh, much bigger damage between now and then. But I don't know. I really don't know uh, how it's going to go down exactly. But I'm sure that one way or another, the Fed is going to reverse course because clearly if we go into recession, which we will do if the Fed doesn't reverse course, then what they're going to do the same policy they've always done. I mean, these idiots still think that quantitative easing worked. They still think their policy was a success. They're not going to realize that the crisis that we're headed to was caused by what they think was a success. That because we had nine years of phony economic growth that were created by 0% uh, interest rates and quantitative easing, that what we're about to experience is the payback from that. I mean, they, they just bought us some time, but the cost of that borrowed time is going to be measured in this much bigger crisis that's coming. But the Fed is not going to do any soul searching, just like they didn't do any soul searching during the financial crisis. They didn't realize that that was a creation of what they did in the aftermath of the bursting of the dot-com bubble, right? So they just went and did more of the same. And there's no indication that Jerome Powell is going to do anything different than Yellen or Bernanke or Greenspan. So it's going to happen. Just a question of, is it preemptive or are they going to wait until everything blows up to try to you know, reflate the bubbles once again? But at the end of the day, you know, the, the investment strategy would be the same. The outcome is going to be the same. Now, one thing in particular I want to talk about, as I know a lot of people, you know, looking at the gold stocks and saying, hey, you know, the gold stocks are down. Why aren't the gold stocks going up? You know, uh, you know, the market is tanking. And why are gold stocks going down too? And, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, one reason is the price of gold is not really going up, right? I mean, and you can ask, why is gold not going up? I mean, gold's probably down a little bit. I mean, gold's not getting killed, but it's going down a little bit. And, of course, if you own gold stocks and you expected gold to go up and it's not, and now you're dumping those gold stocks, the gold stocks can go way down simply because gold didn't go up because people are thinking, hey, if gold's not going up now with the, dot, with, the, with the Dow crashing, well, when's it ever going to go up? Maybe it's never going up. So I'm going to just sell these gold stocks, which is another reason that gold stocks are going down, because I think people are giving up on them. And also, you know, you do have some portfolio managers 
that probably own some gold stocks. There's not many, but there's some. And they probably have them in there and they think, okay, this is my hedge. It's a negatively correlated asset. And so if all my other stocks go down, you know, my gold stocks will go up. Well, now all their stocks are going down and their gold stocks aren't going up. They're going down too. And they might be thinking, ah, forget this. I mean, there's, they're not non-correlated. It's exactly correlated. So I need to raise cash. I'm going to sell every, I'm going to sell these gold stocks. So you probably have some of that going on. But also the underlying issue is that people still believe falsely that rising interest rates are bad for gold. And they're not. But where they're really not bad for gold is rising long-term interest rates. I mean, you can make a better argument that rising short-term interest rates are bad for gold. But there's no way that you can argue that if the 30-year bond is going up, that somehow that is bad for gold, especially when long-term interest rates are mainly a function of inflation expectations. And if long-term interest rates are rising, it's because people expect more inflation in the future. And if you expect more inflation in the future, that's bullish for gold because gold is a hedge against inflation. And it's a much better hedge than a 30-year treasury that gives you, you know, 10 or 20 basis points more in yield. But also another thing that's hurting gold stocks is resource stocks in general. Oil. Oil is now back below $60 a barrel. It was just back up to 66 67 And so oil's dropped by 10%. Why is oil prices going down? It's because... People are thinking that this global stock market decline is going to slow the economy, right? And the global economy, because they think, you know, the stock market going down could be indicative of a slowdown, or if it isn't indicative of a slowdown, it will cause a slowdown just based on the reverse wealth effect. And so commodity prices are going down. And so commodity stocks are going down and gold stocks are kind of part of that whole, you know, commodity uh, resource uh, basic material sector. And so when you're selling off your basic material, you know, the gold stocks are getting sold. So this is, uh, this is what's going on in this mentality. But all this is just noise because what is happening is categorically bullish for gold and for commodities in general. Because if the Fed is going to go back to QE, which they're going to do, right, sooner or later, either before the recession or the crash or after, when they go back to QE, when they slash rates, dollar plunges and commodities go through the roof. Gold goes even further through the roof. So all of this is going to happen. And also, you know, some of these weak holders of these gold stocks, all right, let's flush them out. You know, they, they, they threw away their cards, you know, uh, too early. You know, it's good to get some of the, you know, the weak baggage away and just clear out all that. And now you, you're better positioned for a rally. This rally is coming, right? The stock market hasn't bottomed. And people are going to figure out what this means, what falling stock prices mean, what rising interest rates mean, what it means for the economy. You know, all these guys are like, oh, you know, we don't have to worry because corporate earnings are still going to be good. How do they know that corporate earnings are not going to be affected by higher interest rates? I mean, they should be. Corporations have debt and their customers have debt. Uh, what about the reverse wealth effect? Right. People don't feel as wealthy when their stock portfolios are going down. Consumer prices are going up. Wages have gone up. I mean, all this is going to impact corporate profits. People are very sanguine that corporate profits are going to keep going up. What if they're wrong? What if they go down? I mean, it makes sense to me that in the environment that we're in now of rising raw material costs, rising interest rates, rising wages, uh, that corporate profits are going to be under pressure. And again, the tax cuts only apply to the profits. The tax cuts aren't a cost of doing business. They're just what you pay if you end up making a profit on your business. So if your business 
has a loss, the tax cuts don't do anything to help you, right? So it, that, that, that only comes into play if you actually have a profit and then you have to, you know, share your profit with, you know, the silent partner, the government. But other than that, uh, it's, you're not guaranteed to get the tax cuts, right? Because you're not guaranteed a profit, but you are guaranteed that you're going to have to pay higher interest rates on the money you borrowed. If your raw material costs go up, if your insurance costs goes up, if your wages costs go up, you're stuck paying those. So people are just, just assuming uh, that corporate earnings are going to be unaffected by, by what they're looking at. And I think that is a very bad assumption. I want to finish up, though, by talking about what happened last night on Capitol Hill with this budget resolution that passed in the wee hours, the House, the Senate passed it. Rand Paul was the only uh, guy in the U.S. Senate that had the integrity to stand up uh, and call out the hypocrisy of these Republicans who were voting for massive deficits under Trump. The same guys that opposed the deficits under Obama. These deficits are bigger and at least the Obama deficits, again, in theory, the economy was bad, right? We were in the Great Recession. So, you know, if you buy this Keynesian nonsense, which I don't and Republicans shouldn't, but at least you could have said, oh, we, we need these deficits to stimulate the economy. But if, they, if you think the economy is great and everything is booming and you're in the majority, you have both houses of Congress and you got the White House, why are you making the deficits bigger? I mean, if you really were against the deficits, when Obama was president, then why aren't you doing something to rein them in when Trump is president? Why are you actually voting in even bigger deficits now than the ones that you opposed when you were the minority? And this is all hypocrisy. And I've said this all along, that the Republicans are only fiscal conservatives when they're in the minority and they can't do anything about it. But the minute you turn over government to Republicans, they can run up the debt even faster than the Democrats. And, you know, they make these deals with the Democrats. They take these bipartisan deals where we get the worst of both worlds. We get more defense spending and we get more social spending. We should be getting less. What the deals that they should be making is the Republicans should say to the Democrats, we will cut defense spending if you agree to cut a domestic spending. Right. That is a compromise that would make sense. That would be a good compromise. Yes, we're willing to make cuts to the military which, you know, the Democrats would like to spend less on the military. So the Republicans should say, fine, we will cut the military spending, but if you need to cut social spending. That would be a great compromise. The worst possible compromise is, hey, I'll tell you what, we'll support the domestic spending you don't like. If you support the military spending we don't like, and they all shake hands, and then Trump sends out a tweet early this morning, and he's like, oh, this is great, fantastic. We got more money for our military, like, like our military didn't have enough money. Like we were really in danger. Like somebody was about to attack us because we're not spending enough money on our military. You know, we don't have enough money on our military. Hey, bring our troops out of Afghanistan. That'll save us some money. There are a lot of things that we could do to save money in the defense budget if we need money for other parts of the defense budget. But, you know, Donald Trump, he campaigned to drain the swamp. Well, now the swamp is deeper than ever. Right? He just allowed more water to be poured into that swamp because the swamp is the size of government. Right, Government is the swamp. Draining the swamp means shrinking government. And now the swamp is deeper than ever because these deficits that have now just been allowed are massive. 
And of course, they also threw out these budget caps, like the Republicans, when Obama was in charge, they said, look, we got to put something in here to somehow, you've got these big deficits, but look, let's put something in here to have some responsibility in the future. Let's have some caps. Let's show the world that, look, you know, we're going to do something about reining in these deficits. They took all that away. I mean, Rand was trying to get a vote to at least keep the caps in after they break them. Let's put them back in for the future. And they didn't even want to do that. It's gone. So they don't even want to maintain a pretense that they're ever going to give a damn about the deficits, that they are just going to skyrocket. They're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, the national debt, you know, has doubled under the last couple of presidents, right? Obama, in eight years, doubled the debt that Bush created. And and Bush doubled the debt during his eight years. So Bush added more debt to the United States than all the presidents before him. And then Obama added more debt to the national debt than all the presidents before him, including Bush. And if Trump does the same thing, although I don't think Trump will do it because I don't think Trump is going to last eight years. But assuming he could last eight years, if the pattern continues, the debt, national debt would have to draw, double from $20 trillion to $40 trillion. So if we're going to add $20 trillion of debt over the next eight years, that's a lot of debt. You're talking about over $2 a trillion a year. And, and based on what they just did and what they just voted for, the tax cuts, because if we go into recession, right, if we don't get the economic growth that was baked into those budget assumptions, based on what we're spending now and based on the tax cuts, if we go into a recession now from this baseline, we're getting $3 trillion deficits, $3 trillion. Now, is there any way that that could possibly be financed? Do you think the Chinese and the Russians are going to sit on their stockpile of treasuries if they see that freight train coming? Of course not. So there's only one way this can end unless the treasury doesn't want to default, right? Because if they actually try to sell all those bonds and the Fed is not going to buy them, if they actually have to find private buyers, where are the rates going to have to go? 5%? I doubt it. 10%? Ah, Maybe. Maybe people will think about it at 10%. The problem is we can't afford to pay 10%. Even if 10% is attractive, we can't pay it. The American public doesn't have the money. They can't raise taxes high enough to pay 10%. So if they had to take 10%, then they're bankrupt. See, it's just like Puerto Rico, right? What happened to Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico was broke, yet people were so dumb. They had a bunch of hedge funds just a couple years ago that, that bought a bunch of bonds that are already worthless. I mean, what were they thinking? I mean, I knew Puerto Rico was broke. I mean, even though I was moving there, I knew how much they owed. I've been in the country. There's no way they can repay, right? It was obvious, but it wasn't a problem until it was a problem because it only became a problem when interest rates went up and they couldn't pay. Well, that would be the same thing. If we actually had to pay 10% on the treasuries to encourage enough people to want to buy them and take the long-term risk of inflation or all that, it is impossible to pay. So we would have to default. But the only way to avoid default is for the Fed to get back in the game, for the Fed to go get you know go away from quantitative tightening out to quantitative easing. And that's where I think we're going to do. But as I said, when they do that, party's over, you know, because the entire dollar rally, remember when we had that big rally in the dollar, you know, gold initially went to 1900 in 2011, you know, the dollar was going down, but all of a sudden everybody decided the Fed's, it worked, QE worked, 0% worked, right? The Fed's policy were a success. Now all they have to do is normalize uh, interest rates and shrink their balance sheet, right? (laughs) Yeah, all they have to do, that was the impossible thing they had to do. It was a premature uh, victory dance. 
You know, they spiked the football on the one yard line and they never got it to the end zone. You know, they celebrated too early. That's what everybody was doing. And when we have to go back to quantitative easing, when the balance sheet doesn't shrink, when interest rates never normalize, you know, no one's going to fall for that again. Because if they couldn't shrink a four and a half trillion dollar balance sheet, they can't shrink a ten trillion dollar balance sheet. If they couldn't raise interest rates from zero before with a national debt at twenty trillion, how are they going to do it when the national debt is at thirty trillion? Right? Because the longer you keep rates artificially low, the harder it is to raise them. The more debt you accumulate while money is cheap, right? It's like the more drugs you do, the more heroin you take, you know, the harder it is to kick the habit, right? The the bigger the withdrawal is going to be. And so if we couldn't kick our heroin habit with a $20 trillion debt and a $4.5 trillion balance sheet. Well, how can we possibly kick it with a $30 trillion debt and a $10 trillion balance sheet? It'll be impossible. So the world will figure that out. And then the bottom is going to drop out of the dollar, which ultimately kills the bond market anyway. We have a, a dollar crisis. We have a sovereign debt crisis, which is much worse than the financial crisis that they were trying to prevent by causing the dollar crisis in the first place. Of course, one of the reasons that everybody was so relieved and happy that this bill was signed is because it averted the government shutdown. And in fact, the government actually shut down for like a couple of hours, right? Nobody, you know, probably noticed it. And, you know, supposedly it's a good thing that the government didn't shut down. I mean, shutting down the government, as I said many times, would be an improvement. I mean, the problem is that the government is open for business and doing damage, right? The best thing that can happen is that the government shut down. Uh, But unfortunately, The government didn't shut down. And so the spending and the taxing and the regulating are going to continue. But it's interesting, too, that, remember, the Republicans were actually willing to force a government shutdown when Obama was president. And the reason they wanted to force the shutdown was because of the big deficits. And they were trying to get some kind of spending restraint into the government and to try to put a lid on the deficits. And for that reason, they were willing to shut down the government because this is an important principle. We just can't sign on to all this debt. And so we're willing to shut down the government until we get some fiscal responsibility out of this administration. Those same Republicans that wanted to shut down the government in order to reduce the deficits of Obama, now they, they, they're willing to make the deficits even bigger than Obama so that the government doesn't shut down. To prevent a guy like Rand Paul, right, from causing a shutdown, they're willing to vote for even bigger deficits. They're willing to remove the spending caps that in the past they were willing to shut the government down to impose. Now they want to get rid of them. And there's no reason to get rid of them because the Republicans control both houses of Congress and they have the White House. So they have all the means uh, that they need to reduce government spending, to make government smaller, but they show their true colors uh, because they don't want to do that, right? When they have the ability to do it, they don't do it. Now, of course, they're going to, unfortunately, because of this, they're going to be right back in the minority, right? Because this, this what, what they're doing now, I think, is this is going to be the end for the Republican Party. I think they're going to get killed in 2018. I think they're going to lose the White House in 2020. So they're going to be back in the minority. They're going to be in a very small minority. And so maybe then, right, they're going to be, oh, all these deficits are terrible. We can't have all this spending. But who's going to believe them, right? Like the boy, boy that cried wolf. I mean, how many times are you going to say, well, we're in minority. We're just, just put us in power and we'll be able to reduce government spending. No, no, the, the minute they're in power, right, they're, 
they're 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 spending like crazy. They're, they're you know there's you know we have basically we have two parties now, right? Because the Democratic Party is basically the Socialist Party, right? The most popular Democrat out there is Bernie Sanders, right? He's a socialist. And I think he's going to define the Democratic Party. So the Democratic Party is now the Socialist Party. And the Republican Party is the Democratic Party. And that's what we got left. We got the Democrats and we got the Socialists. You know, And so what does that mean for our future? What does that mean for our liberty? What does that mean for the U.S. economy? It means a lot of bad stuff is going to happen and it's going to get a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm.